It's Monday, 25 December in the year of our Lord, 2023. It is Christmas Day, and we are honored to do a tradition. We started back at uh, Breitbart Radio, I don't know, a decade ago. We've had our uh, our colleague and friend, uh, I believe the best combat historian of his generation, Patrick K. O. K. O'Donnell, join us every year for the combat history of Christmas. What we try to do is to make sure everybody's aware that in this holiest of seasons for the Christian uh, faith, in uh, one of the most joyous seasons, obviously for everyone in the uh, in the Judeo Christian West with Hanukkah and then the celebratory, um, you know, joys of Santa Claus and all of that for the little kids. That there have been many times in American history. In fact, pivot points in American history have come during this Christmas season in um, in uh, brutal uh, winter conditions, oftentimes. Patrick K. O'Donnell joins us. Uh, Patrick, why why is it? Is it because uh, people have gone on the offensive? Uh, what is it about? Uh, you know, when we talk about as we'll get to the 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 Christmas night in in Trenton to really turn the uh, the American Re- Revolution, or we talk about the Battle of the Bulge or the Chosen Reservoir, or all uh, other of these, and this new uh, new episode we're going to talk about coming from your book, The Unvanquished. The book will be out over. Memorial Day this year. What is it about uh, the Christmas season? I guess in in winter, in many aspects, that uh, that caused major combat to happen. The United States is nearing 250 years, Steve, and Christmas, in many cases, when America is at war, has been a great inflection point. Either um, America has gone on the attack, that being the Revolutionary War, or our enemies have attacked us. And as you mentioned. Weather often plays a huge factor in this. Weather uh, covers or screens um, offensive moves. And this is often when um, the enemy or the United States is struck uh, during, you know, during our conflicts over the last 250 years. Um, And these uh, and these times have been I mean, we're talking about some of the most brutal battles in American history, Battle of the Bulge, uh, caught unawares, Chosen Reservoir, right? A lot of reasons for that, but we're talking that the, the level of um, of intensity of combat has been pretty pretty amazing, has it not? It, it's been incredible. Um, in in all the uh, conflicts that America has been involved in, the the level of intensity in combat has been exceptional, and that is certainly the case with the Civil War which I think is some of the most brutal combat uh, that we, we faced. And, you know, if we go back, for instance, to the winter um, slash autumn of 1863, it's here that the, the Confederates earlier went, went a great battle at Chickamauga down in Tennessee on the Georgia border. And they surround the, the vital town of Chattanooga with their forces. But Missionary Ridge takes place and they break that siege and a new siege takes place at Knoxville, and it's here that a raid has to be take has to take pressure off of that siege, and that is uh, it's part of the one episode, a Christmas kind of raid, if you will, that that involves uh, the recent the forthcoming book that I've written, The Unvanquished, which is on um, Lincoln's special forces, otherwise known as Jesse Scouts, and these were just exceptional men that were in many cases only 18 or 19 years old, young boys that had to volunteer for hazardous duty. And they had no idea in many cases what that was. But after they volunteered, they raised their hand, they volunteered, they were given a Confederate uniform as Union soldiers and then had to do some of the most hazardous duty of the entire Civil War. And most of these men never came home. They would receive seven medals of honor. This is an untold story. Um, And they would lead the armies in war, but also they would fight the South's most dangerous men. And this included John Singleton Mosby and many other incredible uh, partisan rangers, as well as Confederate Secret Service. But on this raid here uh, to, to, to relieve the, the pressure on Knoxville. Well, hey, 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 before, before we get to the raid, I want, I want to give the due. I've got uh, honored to get an early copy Um in fact, it's 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 the proof copy. It's you guys haven't gone, I guess, final uh, final uh, print. This will be out. I want to make sure the unvanquished. Let me get a full thing here. So be honored to show this the first it. time. Uh, it will be out right before Memorial Day. 
It'll be out on May 7th, Steve. And thank you so much for, you were the first person to break the news on this book. Uh, you know, about a year ago, yep. you mentioned it very briefly, uh, but it's a very special book. I've been working on this book for six years and uh, it is a true un untold story uh, that the America in 1941 had no special operations forces and it would be Wild Bill Donovan that would look back on these men as well as uh, the Confederate forces under John Singleton Mosby and the Confederate Secret Service to forge our special forces, which would become the U.S. Army Green Berets and others. And it would change the course of history. And I mean, why is it relevant? I mean, special operations, covert operations are what we see today in this world. And it begins in earnest with our first modern war, which is the Civil War. And it's these men that have... You know, Bolton just used this the other day in this talk about insurrection. He made the case that, you know, a lot of this thing is happening in Colorado and in the, in the discussion around insurrection, that the lawmakers, you know, the secession move in the insurrection, there were 620,000, uh, what, casualties, uh, and not even counting civilian casualties. This was a brutal war. A lot of the untold stories, because we know there's so much written Yes, you're right. It was absolutely perfect. there's a hundred, but it's actually higher. Seven or twenty. Well, that's why I want to ask you. You haven't done a big book on the Civil War yet. Is this your first big Civil War book? You've covered so many of the other conflicts. And and how did you get? How did you get the idea? Walk me through your research because this is why people are so fascinated when they read your books. They're so heavily researched, first person accounts. They come out of diaries and journals. They're, they, your books are popular because they read like novels. Right. With these characters that, quite exactly. frankly, nobody's ever heard of until you write them up. So so walk us through your process. Process is uh, I've been interested in the Civil War since I was about three or four or five years old. It's been a, a minor obsession. It's it's been one of the wars that I've, I've focused on. Um, but I was uh, I was driving around uh, northern Virginia and I, I ran across the roadside sign. And that roads, there are two roadside signs. One was uh, the final hanging place of one of these scouts. His name is Jack Sterry, and it's in the Plains, Virginia. And it's 1862, and Jack is in a Confederate uniform, and he is trying to guide General Hood's and, uh, forces down the wrong road at the Second Battle of Manassas, which would have changed the course of history. And he is out guiding them and trying to convince them to go down this road. And they spent about an hour trying to interrogate this guy, trying to figure out who he was when he's in, in, in fact, one of Lincoln's special forces. And he's trying to guide them down the wrong road. And they basically unmask this individual and uh, they they hang him uh, near this, this spot of this sign. And in, in, 19, in the 1960s, when they were widening the road, they found Jack's body as well as the Confederate that he had killed who was a dispatch rider, uh, just an incredible story. And it was there that I found, I wanted to know more, who were these men? And then it turns out that it had never been uh, written up as a full book. And they had led, they had led the Union Army to victory in multiple battles, but within that story is the men that they had to fight against, which were some of the most incredible, uh, dangerous men of the South that were just, in many cases, uh, just formidable. Uh, greatest partisan forces in the war were John Singleton Mosby, who begins with only a handful of men, and then he grows his partisan force to over a thousand. They ambush wagon trains, they derail, uh, uh, you know, steam locomotives, and they harass the Union uh, relentlessly. And and pretty much anything that goes into Mosby's Confederacy which is this area in Northern Virginia, which is in and around Middleburg, Warrington, and Loudoun County, um, <laughs> is, it, it remains untouched. And they tie down tens of thousands of horses. But within this story is also the story of influence operations um, in, in, that the Confederacy had launched to change the course of the election. And it's a lot of stuff that we see today. It's not just about... Um, supply and wagon trains, but it's also about influencing people and influence operations. And uh, even the first ballots, for instance, uh, mail-in ballots become part of the Civil War. 
And um, there's a, an entire fraud case which involved tens of thousands of ballots for the Democratic candidate at that time, which is I bring out in this book. So it's uh, it's an epic story of, of seven medals of honor, men that 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 basically do everything to wow. to win the war. Okay, amazing. The book, the new book, Sion Vanquish, it'll come out in May. You always do the Memorial Day special with us. The audience loves it. Patrick K. O'Donnell. We're going to come back. We're going to get into uh, this Christmas raid by, uh, was it, what, the official title is Jesse Scouts. Is that what they're called? They were called uh, Jesse Scouts, and then they changed the name uh, over, over time based on the commander. It'd be Avril Scouts or it'd be Sheridan Scouts. But they were the heart of these men uh, begin uh, as Jesse Scouts, and they were they were named after uh, John Fremont's wife, Jesse Fremont, in her honor. And uh, as one quote said, she was a better she man was, than even her husband. <laughs> she was uh, she was Jesse. Fr- she's one of the most remarkable women. Her, she, she and Ever. Custer's wife were the two. We have two amazing women Amazing. Well, hang on, hang on, man. The, and he this was country is got some guys. Yeah, he first first Republican. He was in 1856. Okay, short commercial break. We're here on uh, Combat History at Christmas. We do every year with Patrick K. O'Donnell. We're going to talk about some of the great battles that our patriots waged on uh, on the during the Christmas season and oftentimes on Christmas Day. I want to thank the team put together this great, great, great music uh, that's going to be with us all day. Short commercial break. Back with Patrick K. O'Donnell in a moment. As we head toward a presidential election in November, one thing you can be sure of, 2024 will be a tumultuous year like no other. How will your hard-earned savings fare during this year? You're already seeing the impacts of inflation at the pump, the grocery store. The dollar continues to lose buying power quicker than your wages can increase. How are you protecting your savings? Consider diversifying with gold from Birch Gold Group. For decades, gold has been the choice of investors and central banks to hedge against inflation. Now, you can own it in a tax-sheltered IRA with the help of Birch Gold. Just text Bannon, B-A-N-N-O-N, to 989898, and Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on gold. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't have to pay a penny out of pocket. With an A-plus rating, with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of satisfied customers, you can trust Birch Gold. Text Bannon to 989898 to claim your free info kit. That's Bannon to 989898. And secure your savings now. Take action. Text Bannon at 989898. Action, action, action. Christmas Day. I hope you're having a terrific Christmas. If you're um, watching or listening, I really appreciate it. Get a cup of uh, Warpath coffee at warpath.coffee and uh, slash war room. Enjoy yourself. That's how we start the day. You even need to get jacked up even on a mil- uh, in a mellow Christmas day. You got a big day ahead of you, right? So for those of you who didn't go to midnight mass or evening services yesterday coming back from uh, church services. We welcome you on Christmas Day. We do this as a traditional honor to honor patriots, to honor uh, our country uh, on Christmas Day. 
the combat history of Christmas, American patriots at war during the Christmas season and oftentimes on Christmas Day. You know, um, Jesse Fremont is one of my favorite. <laughs> the Fremonts are one of my favorite couples in American history and particularly the uh, that age of the uh, of the old West and really the rise of, of America as a world power. Her father was Thomas Hart Benton, who arguably, I think, for Missouri, the most powerful, one of the most powerful senators in the United States Senate in the run up to the Civil War. Uh, her husband, the great pathfinder, John C. Fremont, was actually Lincoln was not the first Republican nominee. It was John C. Fremont. Fremont ran in 1856. And um, Trump took the or, uh, Lincoln took the nomination away from Seward and and uh, Chase and and Fremont in 1860 kind of out of, out of nowhere, really a surprise candidate, although he was kind of the, I think, the ones that abolitionists trusted the most, although he was not a fire-breathing abolitionist. There's a story, uh, Patrick O'Donnell, that when uh, Fremont actually as the military, he was the senior general in the West at the beginning of the Civil War, he actually put out a proclamation that freed the slaves in, in Missouri and in, ter in territories under his control, which is exactly what they didn't want to have happen. They're trying to keep the border states of Kentucky and Delaware, Maryland, uh, and particularly Missouri, which had had a lot of partisan ranger fighting, you know, bloody Kansas and, and all that. So, um, you know, Lincoln sent him a, a direct telegram and kind of put him on notice. Hey, you know, I'm the commander in chief. You got to run this by me. And he put his wife uh, Jesse uh, Benton <laughs> Fremont on a train to deliver his response. She gets to the White House or she gets to the, the Union Station. They take her to the Willard Hotel. And I think it's midnight or one o'clock in the morning. You know, it's like taking the red eye. It took multiple days to get there. And uh, she sent a message immediately from the Willard, which was obviously very dialed into the White House, to the to the White House that she was there in Lincoln. Uh, I think it was Hay, the young uh, secretary, John Hay, sent a message to her, come immediately to the to the White House because Lincoln needed to hear this response from Fremont. And, um, you know, f she gets there and it's got, I don't know, it's one o'clock in the morning. Like she gets there and she gives the letter. And I don't think the letter exactly was what President Lincoln was, was, was you know, thinking, you know, wanted to see. And he's kind of reading it. And I think he asked her a question or he looked up, he did something. And she just... She just on a full board fuselage, boom, hit him, letting him know, in her opinion, you know, he was not half the man her husband was. And quite frankly, he was kind of a clown and he was the great Fremont was the great pathfinder, really the leader. And she need, and he needed to start. He needed to start. Uh, he needed to start listening to Fremont. Lincoln cut the conversation off pretty quickly. And uh, basically told, hey, um, get her out of town, get her back to the <laughs> Willard, but get her on the next train back to Missouri. And uh, and then he relieved uh, he relieved Fremont for cause, I think, 48 hours later. So uh, she was not shy about taking on the powers of be. She'd been raised by one of the most powerful people in Washington and was not beyond telling somebody uh, what they could do with it. Uh, so it's quite fascinating that the Rangers, that the scouts were named in her honor. How, how did that happen? It, they are, they, the, the scouts begin in Missouri in that, that cauldron of brother against brother, this, you know, inner rivalry between, you know, people next door neighbors were fighting each other. And Fremont is, is put in there along with the, uh, the men that he has. And he, he raises uh, a series of scouts and um, they are they are named in Jesse's honor. Um, the first commander of the scouts is a guy by the name of Carpenter, and this is this is really made for a movie, Steve. The, the Carpenter is uh, kind of uh, he, he's just full of it in many cases. He's anti-slave. He claims that he was on the the, the John Brown right raid and then escaped through a culvert. Um, he's a crack shot. He wears velvet everywhere, gold chains, uh, even though he's a scout and wears a Confederate uniform. He dresses as a woman in one of the missions to get the plans at Fort Donaldson. Um, but he's also a guy that will steal anything that's not nailed down. <laughs> and um, this, this creates a little bit of a reputation for the scouts. And it's a reputation that's not uh, something that's, that the, the Army likes. And they eventually cashier him out. And the scouts are broken up, and uh, but a, a core of these men remain, and they go with General Milroy's command, and then it goes to a guy by the name of Avril, 
who we are now at 1864, as I mentioned, and there's this raid that needs to take place to relieve pressure on Knoxville. And Avril has this core of men who are crack shots that wear Confederate uniforms and they have to lead his force of about 2,000 men down the backside of West Virginia, the east side of West Virginia, to Salem, Virginia, which is outside of Roanoke today, to take out the rail hub and rail stations and trestles that are part of the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad, which will supply Longstreet down in Knoxville and also potentially relieve his forces. And these men have a, basically a death march across this most rugged terrain in, um, in West Virginia. And it's in December, there's snow everywhere, the horses, the shoes go off. The, um, it is a, an incredible series of endurances that these men have to go through. And it's the scouts that are out front. And Avril takes um, what was then sort of like the machine gun of the Civil War, the Spencer carbine, which is something you could basically fire as quickly as you as you pull the lever back and pull the trigger. These men were armed with Spencer carbines, as well as Colt, Army Colt pistols. Both the weapons that I have in my hand were carried by men in the book that I wrote about. And uh, they are then... You know, on this basically. Hang on a second. I just, I just, I just, I just want to make sure I get the timer. This was the fall of 1863, so this was Christmas 1863 or Christmas 1864. What? I think it's Christmas 1863. Yes. The the yes, it's 1863. Into New Year's 1864. Now, now the Spencer carbines and the Colt Army Colts. They were only, correct me if I'm wrong, they were only given to the most elite troops, right? Because the Spencer carbine was just coming into full manufacture. And the Colt, the Army Colt was the best precision weapon handgun at the time. Yes. Well, in terms of the Colt, that was was given to most, uh, many men as a sidearm. But it would be the cavalry and especially the scouts, as well as John Singleton Mosby, who would carry these along with the Navy. The Colt, uh, the Army Colt was a 44 caliber pistol. The Navy was a 36, but it was all about speed and, and, and basically attacking the enemy quickly. And, and they would they would use pistols on horseback. Much of this book is just action packed. It's guys on horseback getting in ambushes. But yes, the more elite Union units would have the Spencer, which I tell the story of the Spencer in the book as well. It's Lincoln himself that tests Spencer. With it, with with the with the Spencer's designer, they they go out of the White House, and it's the 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 Washington Monument is currently being under construction, and they pull out a target, and it's they give Abe Lincoln a Spencer, and he's able to hit several bullseye with it with the uh, with the Spencer, and uh, I mean it would have it would have changed the war if they had put it in the hands of most Union um, Union soldiers, but it was a situation where they didn't have. Enough ammunition in most cases. Uh, the 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 demands that it would have taken to, to arm over a mil- million men with a Spencer carbine were too high at the, that time. And various things that, that the, occurred. The, 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 we're going to go to break here in about a minute or so, about ninety seconds. So l- let me. The, I've spent many Christmases down at Salem. I've I've got a family down there. I'm from Richmond and Norfolk, but I spent a lot of time in Salem, particularly over Christmas. Those are not mountains coming out of West Virginia and Western Virginia down to that railroad center in Salem and in Roanoke. That's not someplace you, you want to be out traveling a lot on foot or on horseback over Christmas. How, how did what was so important? Why would the urgency that you would send troops, particularly elite troops, into that type of uh, a, a journey? The urgency is that Knoxville is about to fall and they need to cut the supply line. The Virginia Tennessee Railroad, which runs through Salem along with along with other points all the way down to Tennessee. And the plan is to act as a diversion, to basically cut the supply line, maybe cut the the ability for the Confederacy to remove Longstreet from down there or supply him, but also act <coughs> as a distraction to, to draw troops away from that front to deal with this new threat. And this new threat creates a massive response from the Confederates. Six commands of Confederates on horseback largely then go after Avril and these scouts. And it is a brutal uh, march through the mountains, as you mentioned, but they also have to evade constantly the Confederates which are on their tail. After they destroy the railroad, they then have to escape 
And it's the scouts that do some amazing things, Steve. They run into, for instance, an enemy <laughs> scout. Uh, <laughs> good. I tell you, hang on, hang, hang, hang on. Let's get let's get some Christmas music again. We're gonna come back right at the uh, uh, right after a short break. Patrick K. O'Donnell with Combat History Christmas here in the War Room, our annual special. We're gonna be back in a moment. special the combat history of christmas patrick k o'donnell's done this for us for many 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 years how did that when did the actual when did they actually get to the railroad line of salem was it around christmas day put it put it in perspective of in in the holiday season because it's bitter cold i mean when you're in salem you're in the mountains right there but there's much higher mountains right around it so and particularly the way the route they were coming where um when did the battle actually take place? It's it's in the middle of December that this takes place. And they then, um, it's a little bit after December, a little middle of December, that they actually destroy the rails. They do, um, they basically twist the railroad ties. They burn all the trestles. They burn any infrastructure that's in the depot. And then they have to get home. And this is, they're over 200 miles away from their, their home base, which is near uh, New Creek, um, it's it's in Maryland slash West Virginia, which is up near um, Cumberland, Maryland, and they they have to somehow get back. And there's six commands of Confederates. There's thousands of Confederates that are swarming the area, and they have to get home. And there's a number of rivers that they have to cross to get home. Um, but with they're they're kind of lost in a sense. So uh, General Avril orders the scouts to find somebody that knows them that can take sort of the across some of the rivers. And they found a, um, a, a roving physician who was kind of making his rounds to people. And uh, Avril takes him, the scouts take him in, they bring him in front of Avril and they say, and Avril says, you have five minutes to make a decision. And he brings out his watch and he brings out his, his, his probably his cult army and says, I will kill you if you don't give me, you know, safe passage and I'll give you five hundred dollars in gold as well as safe passage of your family if you comply. And the thing that the clock ticks down to around four and a half minutes, and then the the doctor finally succumbs and uh, agrees to sort of lead them across one of these bridges. And as the scouts get towards the bridge, one of these crucial bridges that they have to cross, the bridge is about to be fired, and the scouts literally intercept a Confederate rider who's also a scout but in their forces with a message to burn the bridge. And they, they basically take the message and then are able to seize the bridge before it's burned and uh, are able to cross. But in the process, uh, the part of Avril's command is, is left behind the 14th Pennsylvania. They burn the bridge and uh, these men are escaping from Confederates and it's an epic story. They have to cross you know, the part of the, the, the river near Covington, uh, which is, you know, frozen. Uh, they ford it. Uh, many men die uh, in the process, and they're they're making their way back towards New Creek, which is about, you know, 200 miles away. Before we get to uh, 
Trenton, I want to talk just about the book. A- A- Avril, General Avril, um, look, I tell people if you there there was a the war in the east, particularly not Mosby's Rangers, but particularly the two the two bigger army in Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, whether under McClellan or under Grant, as intense as that combat was, much of it was by the the terms of chivalry at the time and what was perceived. Because remember the 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 nineteenth uh, century had a very different code of honor uh, than than moder- than modernity. Uh, even the, even in the huge battles of the armies of the West, but going on, and I think up to a third of the conflict in the Civil War, and particularly the one that was the nastiest, was ugliest, was these partisan Rangers, Missouri, bloody Kansas, being a a kind of a precursor to what was to come. Um, and this is one of the powers of Lee at the end, because the whole thing could have devolved to that unless Lee had surrendered and worked out a deal with Grant, and that's why they didn't want to go back to this kind of partisan warfare. But Missouri particularly, the border states overall, but Missouri in particular was a cauldron, a cauldron of the most brutal fighting, I think, in the nastiest fighting in the Civil War. Was it Quantrell's uh, Raiders? Uh, this is where I think Jesse James and these guys came up from, you know, the the the, um, the bank robbers later on who basically were Confederate partisans. You had the Red Legs. Have you ever seen the outlaw Josie Wales? It talks about the Union. Um uh, troops. They had these. But General Avril is also one of the most controversial guy. I mean, he's not he's no angel. Right. <laughs> General Avril, no. because correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong. It, wearing a Confederate uniform as a Union Special Forces operator or special operator is that's an immediate in the rules of war at that time. You were immediately shot or hung. There was no, was there was no trial. Nothing. If your enemy. You're 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 de- you're a dead man, correct? This is an immediate death sentence if you're uncovered, and that's why these guys are so amazing, Steve. They had to ca- talk their way out of countless situations, or shoot their way out of countless situations, or they were dead men, like Jack Sterry, who I had mentioned, who was killed at the Plains in 1862. That many of these men were hanging from a rope. Uh, during the war. That's why their story is untold. That's why the Unvanquish is really, uh, you know, in many ways that, that their story is extraordinary and how they changed uh, the war. But it, uh, equally interesting and extraordinary is the men that they had to fight. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's a miracle that the United States uh, won the Civil War, if you really look at, at, at everything and how it Oh, how no, it, no, it, it's... Yeah. Even with the overwhelming uh, equipment and manpower, just the, the, the vast territory they had to do. And that's why at the end, you know, exactly. and, and Sherman told Lincoln, Sherman told Lincoln this in the first 30 days of the war, 60 days of the war. He met with him. He had come from Louisiana, where I think it was LSU today. Was He, he was running the military academy that was just starting. He came and he said, look, he was from Ohio. He was the younger brother of, of another powerful Senator from the Midwest, Senator, I think it was John Sherman. And he had a, he had a, and Sherman put his brother in front, he's a West Point grad, put him in front of Lincoln, said, hey, this guy could get a generalship or something like that. And Lincoln asked him about his thoughts and he said, let me be brutally frank. You have no idea what you're up against. He says, you're going to have to burn to the ground every major city in the South and you're going to have to kill vast proportions of the civilian population because these people will not quit. He says, you don't really understand how ornery and how cussed, the cussedness, the grit, the determination, and just the old-fashioned orneriness they are. He says, if you think we're going to do this with a couple of you know, armies fighting each other, uh, that's not the way this is going to end. And they, they, he, Lincoln basically told his guys, get him out of here. <laughs> they sent him out west. Six months later, he's in an insane asylum. They put him in for a medical, had a medical breakdown because he kept talking about how you had to go. And, of course, it was obvious. In fact, one time, one of the viewers on the show in one of the chat rooms thought I was defending Sherman's uh, march to the sea. I'm not defending it at all. But as 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 a way to break the back of the Confederacy from that military tactic, he knew what he had to do. This was not about armies. This was about populations. And, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, Atlanta, uh, you know, Richmond, Virginia, my hometown, uh, they burned them right to the ground. New Orleans, these were, these were, you know, they took the torch to the enemy. So the book is fascinating. It's going to be huge. I want to go back to the revolution. 
because in the revolution, also it started with militias at, at Lexington and Concord, or and 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 even beforehand with the we just had the 250th anniversary of the, the you know the Boston Tea Party. It was militias or kind of organized gangs that fought kind of guerrilla warfare. But when we decided that we had to stand up to the British, and the British really put the biggest expeditionary force they'd ever put in New York Harbor. Right after the Declaration of Independence, I keep telling people, hey, I know we celebrate the 4th of July. It's amazing. But that was a group of brilliant lawyers that wrote a divinely inspired document that inspired everybody and gave us the moral high ground. But the British were already sending an expeditionary force to say, hey, I saw the document. The document's lovely. Uh, but we're the Brit- we had the British Army and the Royal Navy, and we're going to put this down. And from that time, they landed, I think, in late August all the way all the way up to Christmas. It was one rolling defeat after the other. Your books have been amazing uh, about uh, give, give us the give us the preamble to, to Trenton and Christmas night, because your books show the courage of the Americans fighting the first time as really organized units. Right. With all these heroic stories. But in the bravery of them, it's one basically from August to they cross the Delaware to hide in Pennsylvania. It's six months of one continuous t- tactical defeat. Brother O'Donnell. Absolutely. This is a, uh, as you mentioned, the British come uh, and they're there to crush. And, and they crush everything uh, in their path prior to that. Every insurrection that occurred in their empire, any little hiccup was immediately stomped and crushed by a massive army and their massive navy. Um, so this is a situation where it looks like mission impossible. And as you mentioned, you know, beginning in August with the defeat at the Battle of Brooklyn, which is an epic disaster, it's the the men that I write about in my books, uh, Washington's immortals, as well as the indispensables that, that save the army. First, the immortals save the army uh, with an epic rear stand uh, at Brooklyn, which buys the army an hour more precious in our history than any other. And then it's the indispensables, the Marblehead men that row the, the army across the Delaware, or I mean, sorry, not the Delaware, the East River, uh, and save it by, by <laughs> bringing it to, to Manhattan. But then from there, it's one defeat after another. But, but hold it. But, but, but hang, hang on. Even to get there, I want to make sure you, you document. And this is why I love your books and our audience does. You spend so many years in research. You get the journals. You have the conversations of first-person accounts. The American Thermopylae takes place now in an unmarked area of downtown Brooklyn. An American Dunkirk with all these miracles that make it happen right there where the Brooklyn Bridge is today. And you read how close this revolution could have collapsed. And at the the very moment it's on the edge of collapse, it's not simply Washington and his staff like Hamilton and these guys that step up. It's ordinary men whose names are lost to history, except for the fact that you went back and did it. The American Thermopylae with charge after charge in this near, I guess, this stone house near where downtown Brooklyn is today. And then the Dunkirk, American Dunkirk, on the shore, right there on the East River, near where the Brooklyn Bridge is today. And both times they barely, you know, they barely hold or barely escape. And these hinges of history are about individuals. It's really about the deplorables. The, the average uh, man who just sits there and does uncommon valor at these critical moments. The books that I've written are about uh, personal agency. It's about a small group of individuals that change history. This happens over and over. The United States has been very, very blessed to produce extraordinary men and women that have changed history. And that's certainly the case with Washington's Immortals and the Indispensables which they're part of, I argue, the greatest generation. The Revolutionary War generation, the the founders are the greatest generation because they produce something more powerful than bullets or bayonets. It's the idea, the idea of freedom and liberty, which is more powerful than anything else in history. Amazing. Patrick, hang on for a second. We're going to go to uh, the run-up in Christmas night. Right. Of this uh, to really save this Christmas night of 1776 with the revolution in the balance. General Washington crosses the Delaware in an amazing military operation on Christmas night. Back in a moment with Patrick O'Donnell.
For War Room veterans, you know we have been all over this supply chain issue with China and medications and the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients. China has a stranglehold on us where there's a way to break that. Jace Medical. I got an emergency medication kit from them. The FDA just declared a global shortage of medication and warned that critical antibiotics are in extreme short supply across the United States. But you know that because you're a viewer or listener of the show. Now, here's the action you can take to correct. Do yourself and your family a favor and get your Jace case right now. It's a pack of five prescription antibiotics you'll have on hand for common emergencies. Just visit jacemedical.com. That's Jace, J-A-S-E, jacemedical.com. Take a few minutes and fill out the form. Your information will be reviewed by a board-certified physician, and your medication will be dispensed by a licensed pharmacy at a fraction of the regular cost. You'll be glad you have the Jace case. Go to Jace Medical. That's one word, J-A-S-E, medical.com, and enter code Bannon at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code Bannon at Jace, J-A-S-E, medical.com. You know what the problem is because you've watched the show. You can break, you can take action and break that problem by going to Jace Medical and get your Jace case today. Action, action, action. Washington's Immortals and the Indispensables. It is about human agency. It's one of the things we talk about on the show all the time. And that's why this audience, this war room posse, has become such a massive political force in the country, using their own agency, everyday men and women. What astonished me about the story about to tell us, and we'll start here in, in this last block of the first hour, continue on, because it's a story that people have to understand about what this country is about. We went on a series of, I mean, catastrophic defeats with all this heroism and at the last second saving everything to make sure the army wasn't destroyed because the British idea at the time, and that's why they wanted to get out of Boston and these other places, is to destroy the Continental Army. They figured they could destroy the Continental Army and, uh, and take out General Washington, that the whole thing was collapsed. And for six months, there's just one, we're one moment away from, from losing everything. And remember, they weren't getting a ton of support from Philadelphia. Um, they, they couldn't pay them. They had a tough time paying them. There was all types of problems with logistics and, and ammunition and, uh, and materiel, as we say. Um, but they fought on. But then when they crossed Delaware, immediately, what I love about the way you tell the story they were immediately thinking about no more retreat, but how do we go on offense? How do we turn the tide? We, we need to get some momentum here. Or we understand the whole thing's going to fall apart. The South and the other places in New England are just going to lose faith that we can destroy. Because remember, one third of the people were with the, with, were patriots and were with the cause of, of liberty and, and, and throwing off tyranny. One third were Tories. One third of our own country and Americans kind of sided with the British said, Hey, we're Englishmen. We're part of the greatest empire that's going to even get greater when India comes into the fold. Why will we leave now? We've got the best deal in the world, and it's only going to get better, right? And you're going to have to live with the fact that, hey, they're going to add a commons is going to tell you what to do. But we can live with that because the economic benefits are going to be tremendous. Then a third, like everything else and even today, a third are in the middle. That's just human nature. and They're going to see who, how this plays out. And so with that, the con the thought is they're always on offense. And how do we get back on offense? Patrick K. O'Donnell. Um, this is, as you mentioned, Steve, this is a American civil war, arguably our first civil war. The country is very deeply divided politically uh, between patriots, between those who were loyalists. And then, there, as you mentioned, those that were in the middle that would switch sides. My books are replete with people that literally jump sides three or four times. 
and it's the battles that change things. Uh, it changes people's trajectory and where they're going. Um, but it's also about a core group of people that are so determined that hold it all together. But as you mentioned, it's the winter of uh, 1776. It's called The Crisis by Thomas Paine, who writes an amazing pamphlet that captures the moment. There's massive political divisions. There's one defeat after another that Washington is suffering. And oh, by the way, there is hyperinflation. Everything is more expensive. Does this sound a little bit familiar? Oh, it's it's actually 1776. Um, but it's it's in this situation that Washington has to act and go on the offensive. And he knows it because the enlistments for the army are expiring December 15th and then later December 31st. This core army that he had in New York, which was about 20,000 strong, is now winnowing down to thousands of men. And he must act quickly. He has to strike a blow to change the, the course of the war. And that's at Trenton. And there's a bit of a problem, though. There's a river between uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Trenton, where there's an, a, an outpost of Hessian uh, or allies with the British uh, army, and they have to take it out. They have to get across the river. And it's the Marblehead men that Washington, once again, the indispensables, that he, that he asked if the job could be done. And John Glover, who's the commander of the brigade, who was originally the commander of the Marblehead Regiment, the 14th Continental says, don't worry, my boys can handle it. And that is a, a bit of an understatement in many ways, because it's a miracle that they were able to get across the river. Washington had a complex plan to take Trenton. He divided his army into, into multiple uh, attacking forces, and the two forces that attacked Trenton um, that were not under the command. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. This is going to take us through the break. It, isn't that? And this is my point about risk mitigation. And remember, Washington was under tremendous criticism. You had Horatio Gates. You had the guys that wanted Saratoga. You had different factions inside the Continental Congress. There was talk of relieving Washington. Because even as small as the army was, they were saying, hey, how can we have any, had, had any real victories? How have we not, uh, how have we not even uh, been able to stop the British? The only thing that's really stopped them, they stopped at the river. And come the spring, they'll be down in Philadelphia. They'll take in our first capital and this game will be over, right? So Washington was under tremendous pressure. Hang on a second. I tell you what, we're going to go to break. I want to answer that when we get back. The, the just the risk of splitting your army into three when people, most people will say, Hey, you want to cross you. The most dangerous thing you can do in warfare. Uh, I've been taught many times is a forced crossing of a river at night in winter under combat conditions. Right. So the question is, why did Washington even split his force up and not keep it together? Okay. We're going to take a short commercial break. We're going to come back. We got the second hour. We're also going to get to uh, Christmas night in Trenton. We're going to talk about the Battle of the Bulge. We're going to go to the Chosin Reservoir, one of the greatest examples of the heroism and the grit of the United States Marine Corps. All of it. Uh, and enjoy some Christmas music on Christmas Day here in 2023. Be back with Patrick K. O'Donnell. The Combat History of Christmas next. Folks, let me tell you about Salty. It's a company that makes a soft gel supplement rich in antioxidants to help people like you and me keep a healthy heart. While COVID gets all the headlines, it's important to realize that heart disease kills nearly 700,000 Americans every year. Yes, heart disease is the number one killer every year, year in and year out. Heart disease builds over time. Hypertension 
high blood pressure, bad cholesterol, diabetes, all of it affects our heart. A healthy heart is key to being energetic as we get older. It is never too early to take care of your heart. You see, heart disease sneaks up on us. You can start in your 30s, and when this happens, you're at serious risk by the time you turn 60. If you want to take care of your heart and those you care about, please go to warroomhealth.com. That's warroomhealth.com. All one word, warroomhealth.com. Use the code WARROOM at checkout to save 67% of your first shipment. That's code WARROOM at checkout to save 67%. And do it again. WARROOMHEALTH, all one word, WARROOMHEALTH.COM. Go there today. You need, if you're going to be part of the posse, you need a strong heart. You need a lion's heart. How we're going to do that is with Salty. Go there. Do it today. Check it out.